Like every race was an opportunity to experience joy on the bike with my friends. Like that, whether it was a race or it was a training ride, didn't matter. Like, and when you, when you kind of take the scales off my eyes, I guess, and I realize that everything doesn't have to be so high stress, then that's really when the results started to, to flow. back to the Training Edge podcast. So I started this podcast in late March, and as such, haven't even been at this for two months. But man, I've had some really cool conversations and learned a ton. With anything, there was a learning curve, and on purpose, I chose to do the editing, publishing, and hosting of this podcast. I, of course, still have a ton of work to do, and honestly, I hope that it stays that way. But I also appreciate you guys for being along for the ride, and hopefully you've had seen some improvement. The goal here was always to have rad conversations with rad people, to learn and discuss different things that would allow both the listeners and myself to unlock their hidden potential as athletes and just as people, which is why I called this the training edge. So that brings us to today's guest, Grant Kuntz. Grant, on paper, is a cyclist that has podiumed at pro races as well as won jersey classifications. But what stands out most to me about Grant was his ability to find what made him happy and shape his role in his sport to match that, rather than let the sport define him by what is considered normal. I think he inspires us all to shake things up, try something new, and above all, just love and live life, whatever that might be. All right, here's my conversation with Grant Kuntz. All right. Hey, Grant. Thanks for coming on. Yeah, thanks for having me. So how are you doing? And how are, how are things during this pretty crazy time? <laughs> they've, been, they've been pretty all right. I've, uh, at the start of this whole thing, I kind of I started out with a bikepacking trip where I kind of rode across the country, and then I kind of got stuck in Oklahoma when things really got severe. So Ugh. I went from being stuck in Oklahoma to being stuck in Houston, and in the process of getting unstuck at the moment, but it's all been good. <laughs> yeah, we'll we'll touch on your Oklahoma trip actually in a bit, because um, yeah, that was that was pretty epic in itself. <laughs> uh, so, for everyone who doesn't know Grant, um, Grant lives a very different lifestyle, I would say, than the stereotypical pro roadie. Um, and what I'm trying to do with this conversation is um, uncover what that is. Um, how you got there and why you do it. Um, so to start, I want to go back to the beginning. What age did you decide that you wanted to be a pro cyclist? Um, I got a later start than most, which I think definitely has its pros and cons. I've thought a lot about both the pros and the cons, but <laughs> it's, uh, I, I started racing when I was like 16 or 17. And I didn't really start taking it seriously until college. So I won a time trial national championship in college. And that was kind of the breaking point where I was like really 
considering like trying to be a professional. I'm, I always had like the kind of youthful energy of just, oh yeah, I'm just going to keep doing this and I'm going to go race the Tour de France someday. But hmm. okay. at, the, at the time I had really no idea what that took and I, I guess I still don't really. But, <laughs> but so, when, I, when, I, when I won that national title, that was kind of the, the breaking point that convinced me and convinced some of the people around me that I was actually kind of okay at this you could do it yeah so what did i guess what did that mean then so at that time when you thought of a pro cyclist what did that mean to you what was the i guess your definition of that person uh i think like a lot of guys that when you first start like the world tour is is pro and anything yeah. other than the world tour is like ah who cares and at the same time you Throughout the journey, I guess I started to break it up into into bits because you you have to like that's such a huge leap to make it to the world tour, and it's a leap that honestly very few Americans can make, and so you kind of have to break it up into into the domestic elite and then the continental and then the pro continental and it's it's not a it's not a straightforward journey I guess and for me collegiate racing was kind of I think I've, it was a, a confidence booster, but not necessarily a, an accurate depiction of what it would take to be successful in the sport. Yeah. yeah. And so that kind of gave me a naive sense of security, I guess, in the sport. And like, oh, yeah, I just won a national championship. Like, you look at guys on TV playing football winning national championships, and you're like, oh, they're about to go to the NFL and make millions of dollars. Like, that's kind of... I wouldn't say my mind went that far, but it was definitely like, I've won a national championship now. Like, come on, world tour, let's go. Yeah. And that's not Bunch at all, ticket. obviously, yeah. how it's been. Yeah. So the, I guess that pro cyclist then, so you thought about getting to the world tour. Did you see any, like, let's say, for example, the American pros that were around you that you were going and competing against? Did you see them on this, like, pedestal then? Or did you see them... Um, I, I did for a while, and okay. I think I was lucky enough to actually, I went to Texas A&M, and so that's only an hour and a half or so drive from Austin, Texas, and Austin is one of those hubs where a lot of pros would come in the winter and train, so in my winter training for a while, I would basically just migrate to Austin and go train with Lawson Craddock and Nate Brown and Johnny Brown and Chad Young and all these guys that I looked up to and before you meet them they are definitely on a pedestal and like I think that's a lot of like celebrities and like yeah. m people that you look up to that you don't actually know like they're they're this like ethereal realm of like what you could achieve potentially and Lawson especially he was from Houston and I'm from Houston so he was he was the kind of the the real hitter that I looked up to to kind of showcase what I could potentially do someday and he's only like a year or two older than me so it's yeah. not it's not that much of a difference but he started obviously when he was like 12 or 13 and I started when I was 17 so I was, I was a few years behind and come to find out a whole lot more than just years on the bike to yeah. make up that difference but <laughs> just a bit 
in 2018 then you did make it you did um achieve the pro license um so you signed with hollow Wesco citadel which is a pro con was a pro continental team at the time um when that happened when that came together what was that like what did you did you feel that sense of accomplishment did you feel like you were all of a sudden on that pedestal with those guys or no um at times at times i absolutely felt like i was a paid professional and like this is what i'm doing and like going to local races and stuff you have almost i felt this added sense of pressure to like justify my rank <laughs> yeah, like if i'm not winning these local races then what am i doing and then you but in hindsight i look back at that and i look back at racing against lawson and nate and those world tour riders and when they would come to local races they were treating them 100 percent as training <laughs> it's like they a lot of times they would even they would race 90 miles of a 100 mile race and then just turn off the course and go ride home <laughs> and it's like <laughs> that it was a completely different mindset but i kind of lost sight of that and i definitely kind of used that pro card to just tack pressure on myself and like feel the need even more so to to justify my position and i don't think that was necessarily a a healthy pressure i think that was i mean yeah. there's 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 parts of it that were justifiable and whatnot but at the end of the day it's like there's a whole lot more to it than you have to be fast when you need to be fast not not all the time and those local races are not necessarily the time to be fast right and it counts when it counts right for sure and it i do think it's super common for um anything from pros to local hitters to show up to a local race that they've won before and feel an added sense of pressure to that and not to mm -hmm. mention like in cycling you're marked yeah. <laughs> so I'll get out when you have that pro jersey on. Yeah, for sure. Um, so when you're on that team, what was that year like then? Because you're going from, um, what was the team that you were on before that? Arapaho Resources. So then jumping from Arapaho Resources to Holowesco, what was the change there? How is that different then now that you're on a pro operation? It was, it was a pretty big jump. And in the moment, of course, I'm like just pretty elated with, the way that things had been going and like it was kind of a team merger and there was uh mixed emotions i think with yeah like my ability to justify in my head whether i deserved that spot and i had basically this idea that i was going to do everything in my power to prove that i was ready and of course there were days where i was like oh i'm absolutely 100 ready for this and then there were other days where i'm like what have I gotten myself into? Like, it was a, it was kind of an emotional roller coaster, and I think that was definitely one of the harder things that I wasn't really prepared for. Like physically, I think I do have what it takes to race at that level, but at the time, mentally, I don't think that I was really mature enough to. To ride that roller coaster, if you will. Yeah. So, I mean, that's a huge. I think that's all. Like we were talking a little bit about Lawson and how's he's had his period of time of maturity since um, just essentially being within the sport. Um, 
not even within years of being alive. And that adds up so much just within years of experiencing that level. And if you've been doing it since you were 10 or whenever he started, then that makes a big difference. Um, for sure. For yeah. sure. And that was kind of a, another realization is like, I had always looked up to this team and a lot of my teammates, like John Murphy and even guys like Brendan Rim, like he's younger than me, but I always looked up to him and I always looked up to their kind of prowess in the sport and their work ethic and to be wearing the same jersey as them and to race alongside them. Like it was kind of a, a culture shock, but it was like, it was really special at the same time. Like it wasn't, definitely wasn't all <laughs> negative, even though I could like that emotional roller coaster, like going to training camp and like being teammates with these guys that I had seen race on TV, like that's that's pretty special. Yeah, definitely. I think it's a good thing if you're a little like uh, I don't want to say starstruck, but that's kind of it around <laughs> a little teammates. bit. Yeah, it's okay. Yeah, I've been there. <laughs> um, so at that time, what was your training regiment like? Did you would you say you were pretty standard? Um, pro roadie regiment that was you were coached by somebody on the team correct yeah yeah so going into that year I was coached by well I guess the two years leading up I was coached by David Wanger who was a friend of mine from Austin and we were yeah, teammates yeah. and he's coached a lot of guys and so when I got on Hincapie I basically they offered to have their performance director coach me which at the time I was like absolutely let's do that because the performance director was Bobby Julik, and he had worked with Froome on Team Sky, and he'd worked with Saxo Bank, and he podiumed at the Tour de France. Like he yeah. was, he was another one of those guys that I ended up like working alongside. And at the same time, I was like pretty starstruck. Like we would, when I was in Greenville, we'd go to his house and have barbecues at his house, and I was like, "This is pretty wild." <laughs> like, <laughs> but. Um, yeah, so I ended up having Bobby coach me for that, the majority of that year, and it was a pretty, like, I don't know if, I honestly don't know if it's stock standard, but I would say for a high-end coach and a high-end performance director and a, a team like that, like, I think it's pretty, pretty regular. Just yeah. three-day, three-day training, kind of little segments built into three-week blocks and, like, all sorts of intervals every day every day was pretty, intervals. pretty regimented then <laughs> yeah yeah absolutely yeah so pretty standard <laughs> um, <laughs> at least on that front i remember also at the time chatting to you i think you came back to colorado and you were having this struggle with your team on living in colorado versus living um at the home base with the team um what was that like and where did that how did that come about yeah so when i first showed up to training camp they didn't really know that much about me. Like I, I showed up and I was the new kid and they didn't really know much about me and I was brought on by the sponsor and all this stuff. So it ended up being kind of a, it was a culture shock both ways, I think. Yeah. <laughs> so I had a, like a sit down with all the, all the directors and the owner and all this stuff and explained to them like, yeah, I've, I live in my truck on a farm in Boulder um, I, at the time I was working on the farm while training to like kind of justify my keep there. And it was, I loved it. <laughs> like that was, it was like a, I, to me, I felt like it gave my life a good sense of balance and 
the farm work was something to get my mind off the bike every day. Like every morning I'd get up and take care of these animals and milk cows and feed pigs and chickens. And like I ended up kind of becoming the, the team or not the team, the, the farm chef. And I would oh, cook nice. breakfast every morning and like that, I kind of had these roles and this like family dynamic outside of the sport, which I was kind of reliant upon at that time. Yeah. And they would also help me like there was workers coming and going all the time. And the family that I lived with would help take care of my dog when I was traveling for races. And it was just super helpful. And I really loved living there and doing all that. And of course, when they found out that I was doing all that, the team did, that is, um, I, they basically asked me politely to stop. <laughs> and they thought that I needed to focus all of my energies into the sport. And I remember them saying something along the lines of this sport is too difficult for you to have like difficulties like that outside of like training basically and racing. Like everything in the sport is too stressful. And if you're doing all this farm work, like that's just going to add extra stress to your life that is going to potentially compromise your success. And I struggled with that for a while, <laughs> like struggled with them telling me that. And I didn't really know what to do about it. So I ended up going back after training camp to the farm family and telling them like, like my, my team wants me to move away. And like all these guys, like I said, that I've looked up to my whole career, like they're trying to mentor me in a way that's going to lead me down a path towards success is what I saw it as. And if they're saying that I need to like stop working on the farm, then I need to stop working on the farm. Like I need to do what they're asking. And so they kind of made this agreement that I could keep living there without working. And to me, that was a, a good compromise. <laughs> like I could keep yeah. like that community there. I could like, again, they would take care of my dog when I traveled. That was a, a big, a big thing for me. And cause I really didn't want to get rid of my dog. That's, that's been a, a constant struggle, but, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, so it ended up just kind of, to me, I saw that as a, a decent compromise. It's like, I'll keep living here in my truck on the farm, but I just won't work. Like, and that, that was another time when I transitioned away from like the manual labor of farm work and more transitioned into being like the, the farm chef. <laughs> that was, it was a less, less stressful way to, yeah. So we're getting kind of into the meat of the conversation, and this is kind of what I was guiding to. So the, <laughs> um, basically, as a, a roadie, um, it is very much the concept of uh, working on a farm, working a job at all, doing manual labor is all going to take away from your training. And their response to you, I would say, is pretty classic. Like, that's mm -hmm. a very... Um, I would say like old age thought process, but it's something that the sport really sticks to. Um, it's, we, they, the sport of cycling can be pretty old fashioned in that regard. Um, but I remember the day where you talked to me about how you were not really doing any chores on the farm anymore. And you kind of said it with a little bit of sadness. Like there was a little bit of <laughs> something that you were letting go of. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, so, all right, let's step back. How 
did you get the job at the farm and when did you come to that idea then? Cause you're, was this before or after you signed the contract to race professionally? It was before. So okay. I kind of, my years at Team Arapahoe Resources were kind of a, an intermediary period, I guess, where I was still getting paid to race. So in my mind, I was, that was a professional job to me. Mm-hmm. And in Oklahoma City, they, that's where the, the team was based at the time. And they had a team house for us to live in, which kind of ended up falling apart. And so I raced Intelligentsia Cup, I think, in 2017. And we did really, really well and won the overall and won, like, almost all the stages. And <laughs> we ended up coming away with some pretty hefty prize money. And so I ended up, at the time, I had a van, and I sold my van and used the, that money plus the prize money from Intelligentsia to buy this truck that had a, a camper shell on the back. And I didn't really, I didn't really know that that was going to be such a big deal, <laughs> I guess. Like a, huh, in what like way? Just, just like I didn't, real, I didn't plan at that point to, to move into it full time ah, okay. on a long term scale. But... <laughs> I did know that when the the team housing gig kind of fell apart in Oklahoma City that I wanted to go to Colorado. Like, I wanted to move there. I felt like to be the best cyclist that I could be, I needed to go where the best cyclists are. And in my mind, like, coming from from Texas, like, Boulder is this ethereal land of, (laughs) of magnificence. And so I just decided to pack my truck up and I think at the time, actually, I had convinced myself that Fort Collins was going to be cheaper, so I was going to go to Fort Collins. Okay. And I didn't really have a plan. <laughs> like, in hindsight, I don't know how I made that decision so concretely because I, I literally just filled up my truck with gas and started driving to Colorado. With, like, I had one, one or two friends in Fort Collins, and that, that was it. So... I got most of the way to Colorado. I was maybe two or three hours from from Boulder, I guess. And Brian Furley called me, and I guess he saw that I was on my way, and he knows me well enough to probably know that I didn't have a plan. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. so he sent me the contact information of a friend of a friend of his, and that ended up cascading into me receiving a phone call from Andre, this guy who owned this farm in Boulder, and he was like, yeah, you can come try, like, park here, you can do some farm chores for me, and um, we'll, we'll start out with just a two-week, like, trial basis, because I'm just this random stranger coming yeah, to live yeah. at his farm, and, and that two-week trial period turned into almost two years, so. Dang. So when you got that offer, were you, like, all right, cool. I'll try. Yeah, the farm basically. Or, right? Yeah, I was right, like, cool. I don't, I don't have anything to lose. I don't have anything to gain, really. It's like, it was just one of those things that kind of fell into place and fell into my lap, and I was just eternally grateful for, for Brian and Andre, and just yeah. the way that things fell into place. Love your openness within that. I think a lot of, 
cyclists in, in particular, or just athletes, would have probably freaked out in that scenario. Been like, oh man, this is going to be difficult. Uh, <laughs> so I like that you approached it that way. So on the farm, then, what were your like days like then? Like, let's say if you're in a hard training block or you know just moderate training block, what would you what would your day be like? Uh, usually, I'd get up. It was like a a rotating schedule with the sunrise. So every every like two weeks, farm chores got moved fifteen minutes either forward or backward, depending on which way the the sunrise was going. And so, just for instance, if the sun came up at six, we'd start like a farm chores meeting at like five thirty. Wow! And that we would all meet in the barn. Everyone who was working at the time would meet in the barn and have this little chat with Andre and we'd figure out what we were going to do and what we were going to feed and kind of divvy out the jobs for the day. And then we'd work from then till, I don't know, eight or so, eight or nine and have breakfast then. And for most of the people on the farm, the gig was that you had to do the morning chores and then work from breakfast till lunch basically and then you had the rest of the day free and so for a while if I didn't have a like a big training day I I would do that and I would work till one o'clock or so and of course if I wasn't training at all like if I had a rest day or something I would end up working till like five and just it just depended on what that day's yeah like entailed but sometimes you had to drive around town in the flatbed and pick up hay bales from the neighbors or go harvest corn from the neighbors or there's all these all these just various tasks like farm work it kind of suited my personality I guess to where I I'm willing and able to work hard but planning more than like a day or two in advance is kind of out of my comfort zone (laughs) interesting so farm the farm chores were at least from my perspective it was like every day is a new day you tell me what to do and I'll go do it. And whenever that gets done, then I'll go, I'll go train. So I would basically reserve the afternoons for training. And the first few months I was there, it was like late summer, early fall. And it was yeah. afternoon storms every all day. The rain. Yeah, <laughs> so all the rain. It kind of like, I had, I just had no idea. I was ignorant. So I would just go out and train. And I was like, Oh, it's a beautiful day. And I'd get two hours away and just get dumped on. <laughs> yep. And that's hap- that happened every day for like, a month before I figured out that this was a routine. But well, I mean, I, I think that's really interesting that you're so open to day by day because oftentimes athletes need to have, you know, their whole week planned out, their whole year planned out almost to the T. Um, why, like, why do you think you're able to flow with it that way? Why are you wired differently in that way, I think? Um, I think a big part of it is... I've actually been thinking about this a lot lately (laughs) of like why I go on such more of like a short like window like I've spent when I got stuck in Oklahoma just a few weeks ago I was stuck there for about two weeks before I started getting like like antsy like I had to go somewhere Mm -hmm. and then I came to Houston, and I was here for about two weeks, pretty happy for a couple of weeks, and then once that two weeks, like two to three week window passes, and I'm like, all right, I'm done here. I got to go somewhere else. <laughs> like, I just have this very, I don't know what it is necessarily, like, 
but I, I keep getting this feeling like I'm treading water and like, like I'm not, I'm not accomplishing anything. I've, I've spent two or three weeks here. I've accomplished everything I need to like, let's move on to the next thing. And I think, I think part of that could have come from like those like cycling training blocks that I probably started with when I was coached by like David Wenger back in the day, like you, it's three weeks of training and then you get a week off and you can like basically completely reset in that one week. And then you've got three more weeks where you have to kind of buckle down. And so I kind of went on these like, like two to three week windows of like, I guess, conscious effort. And then I had to kind of break away. That's so interesting. It's and, like you're sticking naturally to the periodization schedule. Yeah, basically. And <laughs> that's, I, that's, that's the only thing I can think of of why I, my brain functions that way. But huh. it's a... Uh, and I don't even follow those training plans anymore, like those three <laughs> week on, like one week off. Like I've kind of started to get back into it and here and there I'll do that. But it's, uh, yeah, it's kind of a weird, a weird way that my brain works. But day to day, it's like every day. I would never look at like never intentionally look at like the next day's workout before I finish today's, you know? Hmm. And I think uh, like my mindset was always like tomorrow is a new day. Tomorrow can like worrying about tomorrow or planning for tomorrow is, it doesn't really, it doesn't really affect me right now. Like <laughs> right now I have this task in front of me and I have to do this task to get to the next one. And so I think that kind of day to day, why worry about the routine? Next task? It, yeah, exactly. And yeah. like moving to Colorado, I was in in a similar way. I was like, "All right, step one, if I want to move to Colorado, is to just move there. Like, I'll worry about the rest when I get there." <laughs> and yeah. Like, and it just kind of always falls into place, and <laughs> I just keep yeah. going down that path, I guess. Oh man, I mean, I think that you have the tendency, seemingly, to take it a little bit farther than most people might. But but <laughs> a I little think, too far sometimes. Yeah, <laughs> but I think a lot of athletes could take a lot from you within the idea of like you know focus on what's in your control, which is in now. Mm -hmm. So and make that count. And I, towards the later portion of my racing, started to trend that way in stage races. I would stick when I was following a, a strict plan and. and um, was really in the thick of training, I would really stick to that. And I liked having, knowing what was coming. But when I got into a race, I only wanted to know what the next stage was. I didn't care about stage seven or whatever. Mm -hmm. I just wanted to know what the course was for basically tomorrow or like that night. Um, you can so, only process so much at one time. Exactly. <laughs> and usually yeah. the here and the now is plenty for me to tr like try to process at once. Right, right. So like why worry about whatever, stage five's, finishing climb instead just focus <laughs> right. on like today's flat stage or something like that um yeah cool yeah. yeah i like i like your mentality there that's good um so when you were at the farm what was it like when you went to race then did you just like all right one day you're working with the chickens and the next day you're at a pro stage race like what's the what <laughs> was that like kind <laughs> of <laughs> that's all that was pretty much how it worked um yeah so there were definitely Trying to think, it feels like a lot longer ago than it was, but yeah, um, there were definitely days where I would like get up in the morning, milk the cows, like I don't know, go do some other farm chores, feed the pigs or whatever, and then go ride for a couple hours, and then go catch a plane and fly to a race, 
settle into my host house. And then the next morning I'm like racing again. And it's, it was kind of that, I think that forced me a little bit into that day-to-day mentality of like, hmm. yeah, today my job is to like make sure these animals are healthy and happy. And tomorrow I race. Like tomorrow, me worrying about the racing tomorrow is not going to necessarily help me do today's task any better or worse. Right. <laughs> like, <laughs> like or it could, I guess it could make it worse if I just focus on that. <laughs> but I, there was enough... There was enough stimulation in front of me at the farm to like kind of get my mind off of the bike for a bit. And I definitely felt like I needed that to like provide some balance. And when I was at stage races, it was kind of, it was the same way. Like I, I never really thought about the farm while I was at a race. Like it was, that wasn't in front of me at the time. So it didn't really concern me. <laughs> So then in, um, at the end of that season, uh, Holowesco had some, you know, from the outsider's views, had some difficulties and had to uh, revert back to um, a continental level, which is a step down in the pro ranks, um, and cut a large portion of their roster, staff, and riders, and that included you. Um, what was that like? What was it like processing that, and how did you? Um, it was pretty tough. Uh I think one of the one of the things that kind of got brushed under the rug was a lot of those riders, myself included, had multi-year contracts. Like I was on a Neo Pro two-year contract, and I wasn't alone either. Like Brian Gomez, my teammate, was also on a Neo Pro two-year contract, and it was all those just got voided as soon as financial difficulties came, and we weren't able to sustain our like pro continental status like that was that was it <laughs> and it was kind of touch and go for a while as as you probably know <laughs> the yeah. cycling cycling industry and team management is always a bit touch and go so there one week we'd get an email and it was like oh we're we're gonna save the team like we got this big money sponsor it's coming and then the next week it's like oh no it fell through sorry nobody has a job and it's like it's it really is that like day-to-day that touch and go and so when the kind of final nail in the coffin did come in the in like late fall I had actually broken my arm in a training crash like just uh six weeks earlier and I was like even if they do come up with the money if they downsize knowing that I could get cut at that point because of the the UCI regulations like I was aware that my season had not really gone the way that I had wanted it to, and it had not gone the way that I needed it to. And if even if they had the option to re-sign me, I was pretty confident that I would not get re-signed. And so um, I kind of panicked a little bit. I sent out a bunch of emails, and I contacted directors, both foreign and domestic, and I kind of thought that the having a pro-continental team on my like race resume would potentially help me find another spot and I was kind of determined to just move to Europe that was that was my plan and that just never really panned out and so I didn't find a team for a long time (laughs) and come like December it was kind of down to crunch time and I needed to figure something out so 
I reached out to to the old Arapaho Resources director who ran a, a club team in Oklahoma, and I just decided to to go back and race for them and race with my friends for a while in the spring, and then my plan was still to try to go to to Belgium in the summer and race over there. But in the in the process of all that, in like the two months of of scrambling, I had a broken arm. I was recovering from surgery. I had kind of struggled with a, a breathing disorder all season long, and I wasn't really certain that that was gonna get resolved. I had seen a bunch of specialists and not really like nailed down a, a super reliable solution, I guess. And so I, I definitely fell into a, a bit of a depressive slump. <laughs> and there was a period in there for about two weeks where I was like, yeah, between my arm and crashing and not being able to breathe in races and all this stuff, like I like was pretty just ready to throw in the towel. I was, I was so stressed about it for so long that I like being just washing my hands of it and being done with it just felt like a weight lifted off my shoulders. Like, (laughs) and of course that's, that's a pretty, that was probably like a a low point in my life and my career was like, I realized like what that all entailed, like all the, all the work that I had put in and all the friends that I had like built through the sport and all the like basically five, six, seven years of my life would just, it obviously this isn't actually the way that it works, but it, it felt wasted at the time. I was like, this, this is it. <laughs> I'm done. <laughs> and eventually after about two weeks of like kind of just having decided to, to just throw in the towel, I, I felt this renewed energy of, no, I, I'm not done. Like I have, I have a lot more to give. I can get healthy again. I, I want to get healthy again. I want to race again. I want to ride again. Like all those desires kind of came back all at once. And that, that kind of started me on the journey to, to decide to go to, to Europe the following year. And yeah, that, that was, that was kind of the way that went down. (laughs) So what got you like, that's, it's really difficult to let go of something that you love and something that you've worked so hard for, for so long. And it it sounds like it was a good thing that that was the case for you because you didn't end up letting it go. But like, why, what helps you come out of that? Like what helped come, you get out of that slump? What was the Um, thing? I think it was a a pretty handy dose of perspective because while the team was like struggling with funding and like that was all kind of going on during the season, like after I broke my arm and it felt like me breaking my arm felt like the world was coming to an end and like I was already like insecure at that point and then the team was having financial difficulties and I was insecure at that point so I I remember (laughs) I had surgery on my elbow and I was riding a few days after surgery like in my soft cast well I had like a under hard cast on my like whole arm Uh. and I was riding the trainer like on Zwift while watching my team race in the tour of Colorado that I was like when I crashed I was like basically training for that race like I was trying to trying to make the roster for that race so it was like this huge just domino effect of realizing like I'm not at the race. My season's over. (laughs) Like we're not racing anymore. 
I don't need to be on the trainer just driving myself insane. <laughs> and that was, that was kind of the breaking point. And then coming out of it was almost the flip side. Like at the end of the day, I still love racing my bike and I still love riding my bike and whether or not I have a contract like that shouldn't be the deciding factor of like the contract isn't really what made me happy. Like the joy of riding and the community involved, that was, that was what brought me back to the bike time and again. And that was what brought me back to the bike this time. And I really haven't looked back since. <laughs> yeah, I love that. I think that's also super like applicable for right now. Um, for yeah, those for that sure. are really struggling without a goal or without a race in sight, like at the end of the day, stepping back and, and kind of looking at why you started riding in the first place or why you love it in the first place is still really powerful and it, it's still there. It hasn't gone anywhere. Absolutely. Um, well, that's amazing that you're able to find it. I think a lot of people sometimes step away from this sport having not achieved their goals and they're kind of bitter about it. Um, and that, that can be pretty sad to see. Um, yeah, I, I definitely have noticed in my life as a whole, like I kind of noticed this trend while I was, while I was in that depressive slump, I had all these like wild, like light bulb moments. But, um, <laughs> one of them was that I've kind of had this tendency of kind of throwing in the towel too soon on so many things. Like I wished, obviously <laughs> life goes on, but I, I like wished I hadn't quit football when I did, I played football growing up and I quit when I was 16 years old because I was, <laughs> I was a bit of a late bloomer and I didn't, I wasn't even a hundred pounds when I was 16 and I was like five foot five and I was like, all right, <laughs> football's not going to work. <laughs> and I threw in the towel and I like have regretted that almost ever since because I, I grew to six four. Yeah, you've grown a like, little bit. <laughs> <laughs> I grew into yeah. like the perfect size for the position yeah, that I played, worked. and it was like. <laughs> but, like, that's just one example of many where. And, also seeing it in the outside world of like, so many people quit before, they realize like, their potential. Like they, mm. the hardship is overcoming the hardship is what makes great athletes and great human beings. I think like it's that ability to, to hit the roadblocks and like, just fight through them. Like there's obviously a balance to that. Like of there's course. not, yeah, but there's I a, mean, it's one of those things that like the almost, especially within sport, it's almost like those who can ram their head against the wall enough times are those <laughs> that are going to make it and those that will survive. And yep. I think that like there's a bit of like okay well maybe they're just like really good at just not thinking but like at the same time they they are really <laughs> passionate and they have found their pursuit and they won't give up no matter what and that goes a long way um yeah okay um all right so adventure riding so when did you <laughs> get to the point where that was your outlet then um i think it's kind of always been a background outlet and one of the reasons that I've, I've had issues over the years with coaches, they never have to tell me to train more. They always have to tell me to train less. <laughs> and adventure riding is definitely one of those things that I've kind of butted heads with coaches on. And it's like, if I want to go like ride, do an eight hour ride because it's a beautiful day, like I'm probably just going to go do it because 
that's what brings me joy. That <laughs> like those type of rides like have always it's not even like a pushing myself to the limit type thing. It's it's a it's a therapeutic type thing. Love and that outdoors almost. Yeah, totally, totally. And I grew up in like I was in Boy Scouts growing up and went backpacking and kind of spent some time in the in the backcountry with my dad and my brother growing up and it was always like spending time outside was always what I viewed gave me the most joy. And so the, <laughs> I basically thought that if I maximize my time outside or maximize my time on the bike, like that was the joy just doesn't stop. But obviously that's, <laughs> there's a limit. <laughs> yeah, definitely. <laughs> but the, did you start that, um, were you doing adventure rides when you were um, on Holowisco or did you start that primarily after that as like, um, a, a new thing. probably, yeah, after okay. I definitely had a few days where I would like, like go ride five hours on my fixed gear just cause <laughs> like some friends were doing it and it sounded fun. And I was like, uh, yeah, the training plan can wait. Like, I'll just go do this. <laughs> and maybe that speaks to my just short time on that team, but, yeah. um, <laughs> oh, man. but it's, I always I always kind of viewed the fun side of the sport as the priority more than like the performance side. And I, I think that's what's kept me in it for so long, honestly. Yeah. And that's, you know, some athletes that might sacrifice some results at the end of the day. And I'm not saying it did oh, for I'm, you, but I'm sure um, it does. <laughs> but that's okay. Like if that's your priority and that's what you want, then that's okay. Like that's. Yep. And I, I think. I remember as a cat three, I think I was a cat three and I was like, kind of, kind of burnt out on racing. And I remember watching <laughs> Lachlan and Gus Morton's like first thereabouts. <laughs> yeah. And they're like opening like montage of like Lachlan saying like, there's a lot I hate about bike racing, but it's a necessary evil to like spend all day on my bike basically. And that I related to that so much that <laughs> it was like, that was like my mantra moving forwards and you lose sight of that sometimes. Like when you have a coach, like just telling you what to do all the time. And, or even if you have, like I had goals, performance goals, and I, I was trying to be the good student and be dedicated to that. And I knew that if I like in my mind, you can, you can convince yourself, like if you do X and Y, like Z is going to happen. And that's not really how the sport works, <laughs> no. but um, <laughs> kind of keeping that fun side of the sport and like just remembering why you started in the first place is definitely, yeah, a helpful tool. Yeah. I mean, you just mentioned like the controllables. So you have these controllables, you have, all right, the controllable of X and Y, which equals to, to like Z. Um, but in a weird way, what I've noticed is that like those happiness moments, those, those happiness watts add up in a very uncontrollable way and that's not always um very scripted and it's not something you can track on metrics but that can go so far as an athlete depending on who you are oh it's for sure figuring out who you are um and i've through coaching like you find these different athletes where they need to have everything perfectly dialed everything is to the script and they'll nail it and then you also have those athletes that are like you know i don't care about how I feel next week, I must go ride to this point because I want to see this view. Can I do it on Saturday? And I'm like, you know what? I love the passion. Let's figure out how to make that work and not sacrifice your other goal that you have too. 
and yeah, it's yeah, it's a tricky one. But I I love those athletes because they have so much. They almost have more passion than those that follow the sports. Yeah, I, I definitely like. I think one of the big realization points for me on that one was. One summer, I went on a road trip to. I was racing for Arapaho Resources at the time, and I went on a road trip with Adam Cobley to. We went to. I think Keystone first for an altitude training camp, and we were just riding in Colorado and going from Oklahoma City riding to riding in Keystone was like, whoa, like <laughs> this is this is amazing. So we probably overtrained there, and then we didn't have anything fantastic happen at, at the race in Cascade. But then we went on this huge road trip over the next like six weeks and went to all these national parks and went up into Canada and we would ride like I don't know three times a week maybe like basically doing like being tourists <laughs> like we would just go do like four or five hour like tourist rides and then we showed back up at like one of the last races of the season was hotter than hell in Wichita Falls Texas and we showed up absolutely flying and we were like what the heck <laughs> like we we showed up thinking we were unprepared I think and we ended up going like first and third in the Friday crit. I got second in the road race the next day. I won the overall, like completely caught off guard. And I was like, oh, I guess, yeah, happiness Watts. Yep, <laughs> so that's, that's another point that I was going to get into. Is, so you went, went back, you went to the elite Oklahoma-based team, which is kind of like the newer version of that Arapaho team after being on Holowesco. And then, you know, to be blunt, man, like you hit, the best results you've ever had. Um, and <laughs> yeah. I think your result sheet shows that very clearly. Um, do you think that it was a multitude? I'm sure it's a multitude of things, but did you think it was like lack of stress, lack of, lack of pressure, those happiness watts? Do you think like all that combined? Like what do you think was the big, um, yeah, what switch flipped? I definitely think it was a combination of all of that. I, I ended up racing for like, six, seven, eight teams, like, last year, and just kind of floated around. Technically, yeah, I was on I was on DNA racing out of Oklahoma City, and I kind of had this renewed, like, fire, and I was, like, after being rejected by all these teams, I even had, like, because my results from the Hincapie year, like, were virtually non-existent, because I... I kind of pigeonholed myself as a domestique, but that's a, that's a whole other conversation. But I, I ended up being rejected by, like, every team I reached out to. And I was like, all right, sounds good. I'll, I'll show you. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, I kind of had this chip on my shoulder. But at the same time, I, yeah, just my training was completely, like, self induced I guess like if I felt good I would go rip if I didn't feel good I would stay home and there's obviously a, a balance to that and I might not have done it all right that's I mean I surely didn't do it all right but I came into the season and I like you said I I had the best results on paper that I've ever had and I ended up with a UCI sprint jersey at Joe Martin and that was like kind of the first one to to really kick it off and I was just completely caught off guard by it. <laughs> like it was kind of, kind of like that road trip where I had just gone and done what I wanted to do and then came back and got results out of it. And that's when I realized that what I want to do isn't always destructive. And that's kind of what 
a lot of coaches had tried to tell me was mm. like, don't do what you want to do. That's not going to work. <laughs> do what I tell you to do. And so I think there's a fine line, like, obviously to like how far you can push that. But when I did kind of refined my joy for riding and like I said, I never have trouble like riding enough. Like I always, I always ride either enough or too much. And so it's more like holding myself to like still chase those goals and still find those performance gains, but be like self-motivated instead of like intrinsically motivated, I guess, instead of extrinsically, if that makes sense. Yeah. I mean, like you're holding yourself accountable too, which is a powerful thing. Not all athletes can do that. Um, and, you know, like you also had the ability to live kind of that uh, focused lifestyle where essentially like that was your focus. And um, the hard thing with um, there are a lot of coaches out there that kind of are really strict on there's one way of doing things. And I've always been the individual that says, OK, there's a lot of different ways of doing things. But the key is finding the balance that works for you um, and not letting you overtrain yourself is usually a <laughs> big thing <laughs> as yeah well. absolutely and there's but, there's a like like you said there's a million different personalities in this sport and that's one of the things that i love about it is that whatever it is about this sport and endurance sports as a as a whole it attracts some weird people to put it <laughs> nice word and i nice i word. <laughs> i fit i fit that mold i think of just i mean it's not really a mold i fit that agenda of there's there's a million personalities and I think that's one of the things that that helped me kind of break out of that shell was that you see guys like Taylor Finney for instance like he had this mentality of like free-spiritedness and still found success on the bike with that and kind of it helped him redefine success for himself and I think that was a big a big kind of push for me was to redefine what success meant to me. Like what, at that point, it wasn't about like the contract necessarily. Like it wasn't about every race wasn't a tryout for the team that I was going to race for next year. Like every race was an experience to be had like in itself. Like every race was an opportunity to experience joy on the bike with my friends like that whether it was a race or it was a training ride didn't matter like and when you when you kind of take the scales off my eyes I guess and I realized that everything doesn't have to be so high stress then that's really when the results started to, to flow yeah <laughs> oh, I like it that's so good that's it's so hard for athletes and professionals and so on to not just focus on a number or a sheet or a result or a, and then rank themselves within that. And you see it when you do races, you see it when you're competing, you look at the people next to you and they have this just like scowl on their face. <laughs> and I've yeah. seen so many racers and I could list them all off to you and they're <laughs> successful racers, but they, they are total assholes in races and they, know it like you'll talk to them after a race and they'll be like oh yeah i was just racing and it's like do you hate every second of every race or is this like yeah. ah so to hear somebody say like 
I want to go out and experience that moment and have fun while I'm doing it. It's huge. And it's, I always just look at people that aren't able to do that. And it's like, why are you here for yeah. the moment after you cross the line? Like that seems yeah. horrible. <laughs> yeah. It's not, not worth it. No. Man. Ugh. Okay. So a few weeks back, you reached out to me. This was kind of before, uh, Corona had really become this, what it is. Um, and this was, going into Mid-South Gravel. Um, and I had heard you were going, so I was wanting to see if we could link up. And um, you asked me if I wanted to ride with you there. Um, and my first, I think the way you worded it, my first initial reaction was, uh, yeah, we could carpool. But you were like, <laughs> no, man, like, I want to ride there. And I was just, it was um, February, I think it was February. And it was, I think I was like riding the trainer when I got that text from you and was just like, no, <laughs> no, it's, that sounds like a recipe for disaster, but you, you did it. Like I, our team ended up not going, but, um, you did it and you rode there and then you did the race. So what was that adventure like? Why did you do that? Um, and how did that moment strike you, I guess? Yeah. Um, I basically, it's one of those things where I had this like just idea pop into my head where I realized that Mid-South was coming up pretty quick and I raced clear through the end of December, like down in Central America. So I came back from that completely smashed, tried to go to a track training camp for a World Cup, was still smashed and <laughs> ended up not going to, the, to that race and kind of called it my off-season started mid-January. So... I took six weeks off the bike or so and realized in that time I ended up committing to this gravel team and they obviously Mid-South is like one of the biggest races on the calendar and I've got family all over Oklahoma and I was like oh yeah I'm going to Mid-South but then I didn't really put together the pieces in my head because that's <laughs> something I often <laughs> fail to do <laughs> and I was like all right I just took an off season clear through mid-February and I'm still like the race is a month away and I have not trained at all <laughs> and I was like this is one this is a big like this is a big race so I had this idea like what if I just like rode my bike there and one of our sponsors for the gravel team was Rodeo Labs and like I was kind of unfamiliar with the brand honestly when I like first heard of them and when the team told me that they were riding them. I kind of did some, some research on them, and they're like an adventure bike brand. Like, that's what they do is, like, I was seeing all these bike builds for, like, the Atlas Mountain Race, and, like, Rodeo Labs was sponsoring a bunch of riders, and it's this huge, like, cross-desert, like, bikepacking race in Morocco or something. Dang. And I was like, oh, well, if that's the bike that I'm getting, like, I can... I can do stuff like that. Like that, that was like the enabler. <laughs> and so I messaged a bunch of friends and not surprisingly, no one took me up on it, but I <laughs> <Sorry>. decided to, <laughs> it's okay. I decided to just do it anyways. And I got the bike and built it up as fast as I could. And I left like March 1st, I think I left. So I, I was, I had been, riding I guess for like a week maybe 
going into this, which I would not recommend. <laughs> like in my in the back of my mind, I was like, this is exactly how you get tendonitis. But yeah, it, en- it ended bike. up being <laughs> just go from zero to a hundred real quick. Yeah. But I ended up kind of having this like time in my life, like this kind of another like series of light bulb moments of like this is what cycling is about. Like this these experiences and riding through all these small towns and kind of everyone, I mean, even on the the day to day, like people always ask you like, Oh, where'd you ride from? But when you tell them like when you're in the middle of like the Oklahoma panhandle (laughs) and you're like, Oh yeah, I I rode from Colorado. And they're like, (laughs) what the heck? They like completely don't get it. And (laughs) people would ask me like along the way, like, why are you doing this? And I, to the average Joe, I really didn't have a good answer. Like I was like, I started to question myself, like, why am I doing this? This doesn't really make sense. But when I kind of look at it retrospectively, I I realized that the experiences that I had on that trip, it was it was incredible. Like, I wouldn't trade it for the world. Like, the it was essentially a, a in my mind I rationalized it like, oh, if I went and did a training camp at this time of year, like a spring training camp which is kind of the stock standard thing that you do in the spring with like a pro team, you go out and you ride four or five, six hours a day and you just come back and you're, you're making loops all the time. And I was like, what if I just turn those loops into straight lines and just did four or five, six hours a day, like across the country instead. Hmm. And so I kind of made it a training tool to try to (laughs) try to find some sort of fitness for, for the mid South gravel race, which didn't really pan out, but <laughs> it was, <laughs> I don't yeah. regret it. It was, it was fun. That's awesome. That's super rad. So what do you have, um, let's say life resumes and things go back to normal, which I really hope, you know, someday they will. Um, what do you have in the book? Like, what are you planning? What are you hoping to <laughs> do next? What next big adventure do you, do you have? Um, I've got a bunch of ideas which at the moment are yeah, a bit stifled by, by the situation that's yeah. going on. But um, Rodeo Labs actually reached out to me, and they were like, hey, like, we love what you're doing. Like, if you ever need anything extra, like, we'll, we love your adventures. We love your individualism. Like, we'll help you, like, make – if you have an adventure planned out, like, we'll help you make it happen. And so – Awesome. I haven't – completely nailed anything down but um my teammate Jonathan Baker that was third at the Mid-South race I didn't know him going into the race which is kind of just at like shows my ignorance because he's an absolute legend apparently yeah and has raced world championships cyclocross and all sorts of stuff and we had we kind of spitballed after the race about doing a a bikepacking trip on the Rodeo Labs bikes down the Baja Peninsula in oh, California, cool. or like cool. just yeah. south of California. Yeah. And like going down one side and coming up the other side. <laughs> and that, that would be a pretty hefty adventure, but um, the way that, I mean, he works remotely and right now, like my job situation is, is always coming and going, so. <laughs> Yeah. It's it's one of those things that it doesn't cost a whole lot of money to do if you have the equipment, which we do. And so it's like 
I don't know. Why not? <laughs> why not go do that? It'll probably take, I don't know, two or three weeks. And then obviously it, it's kind of dependent on where the, where the world goes. But yeah, yeah Baja I mean, is definitely like this. It's, now it's like this holy grail in the sky of like, this is what we need to do next. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if it'll ever happen, but it's, it's definitely in the pipeline. Well, dang, dude, let me know. I would be down. <laughs> need to do yeah. those or some sort of an adventure ride um, Heck yeah i also sure. another one that might be a better intro for you is i uh, found intro. out that <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I found out that colorado has like 1500 registered ghost towns no way that's so, so cool i was like kind of my mind just started spinning as soon as i heard that and i was like maybe we could bike pack around all these different ghost towns so and all like, of them not all. Uh, <laughs> that would be so cool. Uh, but man. but pick a handful of them and like make a bike packing route where you like camp out in these like abandoned ghost towns. Ghost towns. That'd be so cool. It also fun. sounds like a solid way of like falling off a cliff or something, trying to get like an old <laughs> yeah. mining town or something like That's that. That's the beauty of it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Fair enough. All right, Grant. Thanks, man. This has been super awesome. Um, it's always cool to hear your stories. Um, yeah, thank you so much for joining me. And Absolutely, yeah, thanks for having definitely, me. I need to, yeah, we'll catch up and get more of your stories as you go throughout the year as things <laughs> resume. But yeah, thanks for coming on. Absolutely. All right, I hope you guys enjoyed my conversation with Grant Kuntz. Always love talking with him. He always has some cool stories to tell, and yeah, it's always a good time. All right, so if you guys could do me a favor and rate and subscribe and review Um, Tell your friends, just spread the word of this podcast that really goes a long way, but I will see you guys next time.